All right, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The uh, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so there you have it. Genesis chapter 2. Now just by way of reminder, uh, I guess it has been two weeks since we were last together. Um, We finished the six days of creation. Uh, We looked at that in two parts. And really what you have in chapter 1 is sort of a... 30,000-foot view of creation as we see the days of creation and we see God speaking and things happening and, and things being formed. God takes the, the formless and the void uh, earth that He had made and then forms it and He fills it. That's what we saw last time. Uh, the first three days, He forms it. The second three days, He then fills what He had formed. And we see the pinnacle of that in day six when he creates man in his own image, and we looked at that, what that image means. 
and how man was given dominion and how both man and woman both share the image of God and together they are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to fill the earth. They are to subdue it. They are to be God's, in a sense, vice regents over the, the newly created world. And at the end of chapter 1, we saw that once God had finished everything, He declares it very good. Now all throughout the creation days, He had said once He had created something, He said, this was good, this was good, this was good. And then on day 6 with man and woman, He says, this is very good. Everything is ready. Everything is set in place. Everything is put in motion. And then we looked as a bonus last time. We looked at the first three verses of chapter 2. And we saw then how God finished His work. He completed everything He set out to do. And He enters into His Sabbath rest. And some of the things we noted in that chapter, in, the, in those first three verses, how the seventh day, uh, first of all, He blesses it. He hallows it. He sets it apart. And we notice, too, that unlike the first six days, which had a morning and evening that marked its completion, in a sense, the seventh day is ongoing. In a sense, the seventh day is something that we are to enter into as an internal Sabbath rest. We are to, to enter into God's rest. That's what the author of Hebrews says when uh, there is still a rest that is yet there for God's people. So that's where we left off last time. Now as we come to this section in chapter 2, it's in a sense a retelling of creation, but it really just, it zooms in, if you will, on day 6. It zooms in, and from instead of 30,000 foot, it comes right down and looks real close on day 6 when God creates man, and God then makes a garden. And so what we got here is, they're not two separate creation accounts. What you have here are two complementary creation accounts. So one uh, chapter 1 gives you a sort of a bird's eye view, and chapter 2 gives you a sort of a more focused view. And what you see in chapter 2, and what we're going to explore a little bit uh, tonight, first of all, you see that there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. Uh, theologians call this the creator-creature distinction. So it's not my words, those are the words of many theologians. The creator-creature distinction. God is distinct from His creation. Uh, there are some philosophies that teach what we call a pantheism. If you know what pantheism means, it's, it's a fancy Greek word. that It's a combination of two Greek words that means everything is God. Okay, Pan is all, and theism is God. So pantheism is all is God. All of creation is God, and God then emanates and creates people and animals and so on and so forth, but all of them share in the divine. But here we see that God is very distinct from His creation. God existed before the creation. God speaks the creation into existence. God forms it. God shapes it. God orders it. He is not identified with His creatures. There is a creator-creature distinction. Another thing you see too is if you consider what we see in chapter 1, it's almost as if God is transcendent there, right? It is God above and He is speaking and He is ordering and God is, is very transcendent. But what we're going to see in chapter 2, you're going to see God becomes a little more imminent. God becomes more personal in this chapter. And one of the hints, and we'll, we'll look at it too, is 
the names that we see here of God. In chapter 1, you don't see this so much in the English, but in chapter 1, you know, you look at it, and God said, and God said, and, and the word there in Hebrew for God is Elohim. I may have mentioned this before. Elohim. It just means God, the highest, the, the highest one, right? But when you get to chapter 2, particularly starting in chapter 2, verse 4, and throughout the rest of that chapter, what do you see there? Well, you see the Lord God, right? You see the Lord God, and you see Lord in your Bible may be capitalized, right? Capital L-O-R-D. That is the English way of referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. So even though God hadn't made the covenant yet with, with uh, Abraham and given, or, or with Moses and given him his covenant name, you don't see the covenant name actually revealed to Moses until Exodus chapter 3, where he gives him his name. He says, I am who I am. But again, this is Moses' account of creation, and he is using the covenant name here. So it's, it gives you the, ins, uh, the, the, the feeling of God is more personal, more personally involved here in creation. He's not some distant guy who's way out there saying, let it be, and then let it go. No, he, he involves himself in his creation. Uh, we'll, we'll look at it more when we get into chapter 2 in more detail. Another thing you're going to see in chapter 2 here as we look at this passage is you're going to see what I like to call a temple motif. A temple motif. Um, Eden, in a sense, is a garden temple. And he create, God creates Adam then to tend it and to keep it and to watch over it. And the words that are used, and we'll get into this more deeply, but the words that are used here are the same that are used of the Levites in the tabernacle to work it and to guard it. Uh, so again, this is you get a temple motif here throughout this chapter. But as we're going to look at this tonight, uh, the theme for this evening basically is this. God creates man, places him in his garden temple, and then makes a covenant of life with him. We'll see the covenant as well when we look in, into this passage. But that's the theme tonight. God creates man, places him in his garden temple, and makes a covenant of life with him. So you got here uh, on your outline, you've got four points. Uh, the first is the creation of Adam in verses 4 through 7. So our passage begins um, with these are the generations, or depending on your translation, this is the history of. Um, if you remember from our uh, introduction to the book of Genesis, I, I may have mentioned this, there are ten passages in which the author of uh, Genesis, which is Moses, uses a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is toledot, toledot, okay? And it's, it's literally translated, these are the generations of, or this is the genesis of, okay, or, or things like that. And, 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 and that phrase is sort of a way to mark the passage of time in Genesis. It's a way to sort of indicate the, the movement of Genesis. So we've just finished the six days of creation, and now when we get to chapter 4, you get this, the first of ten toledotes, toledotes, which here you see this is the generation, or these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The next time you see that phrase will be in chapter 5, verse 1 
where you say this is the book of the generations of Adam. So really, chapter 2, verse 4 to the end of chapter 4 is a unit, if you will. Okay, It's a unit, if you will. So this is the first of ten. These are the generations. These are signposts in Genesis. So we're in a new part of the narrative here. And I've mentioned this earlier. Uh, Again, notice how you see the change in how God is referred to in verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So again, here you see the uh, in Hebrew that is the word Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim is, is how it's uh, phrased in the Hebrew. It, the Lord God or, or Jehovah God. Uh, this is God's covenant name. So whenever you hear God's covenant name, that takes on a personal note. Okay? It takes on a very personal note here. God is going to get very personal now as he creates man. But as we saw, as I mentioned earlier too, in chapter 1, God is transcendent. Here we see God is imminent. Uh, He's taking a personal stake in creation. Now, uh, depending on your translation, do you guys have verse 4 sort of in a poetic structure in your Bibles? It is in mine. So it's, it's set up like in poetic verse. Is it in the, that's what, yeah, that's what I, there, there's a Hebrew uh, uh, poetic structure, okay? I'm getting a little technical here, so I apologize for that. But uh, verse 4 is structured in what, uh, what is called a chiasm. Have you ever heard the term chiasm? All right, a chiasm, so it comes from the letter, it's actually a Greek letter, which is weird that they're applying it to Hebrew. But it's the Greek letter key, which is an X, okay? So if you think of the X, um, the way a chiasm works is it, it works its way into a middle and then works itself out. So notice the structure of verse 4. The heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So you've got a, a, a structure there. It, it starts with the heavens and the earth, moves into when they were created, and then moves back out to when the God made the earth and the heavens. Just a little... Um, note on the structure of that verse. But verse 4 really sort of is a connector verse to, to, to sort of connect us from what was said before in chapter 1 and the early verses of chapter 2 to what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 2. So it's a connector. Then when you look at verses 5 and 6, you're going to see here, basically this is the, a picture of the earth before the creation of man, right? So there was no bush in the field. Uh, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain. Well, you don't see rain until chapter 6 when God brings the flood. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist uh, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So what you have before verse 7, what you have there is a picture of the earth before man was created. Before man was created, there was no one there to cultivate the ground. There was no one there to irrigate the ground. So now I'm kind of talking farmer language, right? No one there to work the land. So it was just kind of growing. And, and God is going to create man so that he can then work it and keep it and, and, and order it. So you've got this picture then again of the earth before Man was created, but then in verse 7, you get something special going on here. 
And again, you've got that phrase, the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. you got a picture there of God personally forming man. Now, the word that you see there, forming, is different than what you see in chapter 1, where uh, chapter one, verse one, where God created. There, there, the Greek word, or the sorry, the Hebrew New Testament, sorry, Hebrew word. Therefore, created is bara, to create. But here, this word is formed. It's the Hebrew word yatsar, and it, it really speaks of sort of like the best example would be sort of like a potter shaping his clay. All right, so think of the Lord God. He's going to create man. Now, whereas before, he had just spoke, right? He had just spoke and everything leapt into existence. When it comes to man, he takes a very personal uh, approach to it. He takes the dust of the ground and he forms it and he shapes it. And he's, you know, like a potter working with the clay. Very personal, very, very intentional. He's getting his, as I like to say, he's, God is getting his metaphorical hands, because he doesn't have literally have hands, but he's getting his metaphorical hands dirty. This is a very personal work here as he is forming man. And then he breathes. He takes the very life that is part of his own essence and breathes that into this creation that he has formed. And then the man himself becomes a living creature. This is very different than what we saw in chapter 1 when he creates the, the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts that, that, that fill the earth. There he just said he spoke them into existence. But when, then when he gets down to man, he's like, no, I'm going to take a very personal uh, approach to this. Why? Because man is created in his image. Man is different. Even though man is of the earth like the animals are, man is created in God's image and he takes a very personal approach to this. So here you see the giver of life giving life to the man that he has formed out of the dust of the ground. And then Adam becomes, as we see, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, he becomes the dust man, right? If you remember our study through 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Adam is the dust man. He is the man of the ground. And it's interesting because the word for man in Hebrew is Adam, and the word for ground is Adama. So you've got, you know, it, there's, a, there's a relation between these two words. Man is of the ground. Yet, despite the fact that man is formed out of the dust of the ground, he is fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Just what we see in Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, each one of us. Uh, don't think that this is just something that God does with Adam and then, the rest is you know, up to us. No, God forms each one of us. God takes a very personal approach to each one of us. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. So that's the creation of Adam in verses 4 through 7. And now we will see in verses 8 through 14 the creation of Eden. The creation of Eden. So we see next the Lord God here in verse 8 planting a garden in Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you see a garden being created and formed, planted, established is the word really, in Eden. So Eden is not the garden. Eden contains the garden. Okay, The garden is sort of part of Eden. And, and that word Eden um, is... In Hebrew, or in the related languages, of course, it means pleasure or paradise, right? And the Greek word, when the Greeks translated uh, the Old Testament into Greek, they used the word paradisos, paradise, all right? So Eden is a paradise. It is a, it is a wonderful place. It is a, a beautiful place. And within Eden, within this paradise, is this garden, and it's a place where God then places the Lord God places the man in there and and the man's going to have a specific task and we'll look at that in a moment but the man there is placed there to work it and to keep it and as we'll see in a moment also uh, Eden and the garden is in a sense a a garden temple it is a garden temple in which God intended to dwell with man and with uh, with his progeny after that we also notice that the garden is well populated with every tree uh, that is good for food. So man will not go hungry. Man doesn't have to forage the ground for, for food. He doesn't have to, to work for food. The food is there. It's plentiful. Unfortunately, Fred, it is, it is all uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, every tree that is good for food, there's no meat. Okay, Man is not a meat eater yet. Uh, but uh, you do have plentiful food there uh, for, for man and, and for those who come after him. Uh, there's, he will not go hungry. But we also notice that there are two special trees. So there's all kinds of trees in the garden, but there's two very special trees. You see there in verse 9, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, these are, in a sense, sacramental trees. These are, in a sense, uh, because they are signs and seals of the promises and blessings of God. The tree of life is a symbol of reward and eternal life. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a test of obedience for man, as we'll see in a moment. That is the tree that, that God uh, uses as the test for man to, to obey him, whether he will obey him or not. Now, Scholars are, are split on if the fruit of that tree was special uh, or if the fruit of that tree was just symbolic in the sense of whether or not um, it was just used as a test. Um, all I know is that God said, do not eat of the fruit. <laughs> okay. um, it, it, it's the tree of testing. Whether the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually gave Adam knowledge of good and evil I, I like to see it more as it was a test whether God, whether uh, Adam and Eve would would trust that 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 you know the Lord, right? If you trust in the Lord, that if you fear the Lord, He is the you know that will be the beginning of wisdom, or whether or not they had to learn it through experience by by disobeying Him and eating of the fruit. But regardless of how you think about that, those two trees are special. They are they are in a sense set apart for God's uh, purposes in a moment. But then when you look at verses 10 through 14, you see here um, how the Eden is structured, right? So you've got a river flowing out of it, out of Eden to water the garden. 
And then there it divided and became four rivers. And then you got the names of the rivers. Now, two of the names, two of the rivers, we don't, you know, historically, we don't know anything about. The Pishon and the Gihon, we don't know anything about those rivers. The other two we do know uh, quite a bit about. The Tigris and Euphrates, they exist to this day. But you got these four rivers, and you notice that this land is well watered. You notice that there's gold and precious minerals and, and precious stones all about. And this is where you get sort of this temple motif, because you know, what is used in the construction of the temple? Well, gold is used in the, in the construction of the temple. Precious stones are used in the worship of Israel. When you get to uh, Revelation 21 and 22, you notice that the foundations of the new heavens and the new earth are laid with precious stones and there's a, a street of gold. So you've got this, 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 this motif here of you know, precious stones and precious minerals and gold sort of being associated not only with Eden, but with the temple and also with the new heavens and the new earth. But the garden is well watered it is filled with gold and precious stones and minerals, all of which are associated both with the temple, tap, the temple slash tabernacle and also with the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, this is a garden temple, a dwelling place of God with his people. And you also see yeah, the fact here, uh, this, this notion how the waters flow out of Eden gives you the idea that maybe Eden is on a mountaintop. And, and temp, the temple was also on a mountaintop. And uh, just as a bit of uh, proof of that, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 28, if I can find it, there we go, Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 28, this is a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but in verses 13 and 14 of that uh, lament on the king of Tyre, um, the prophet is speaking a lament toward the king of Tyre, and he says, you were in Eden. Now, the king of Tyre was not in Eden. So this is more than likely referring to Satan. That's what most uh, people take it to be, Satan, the power behind the king of Tyre. Uh, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. That's an interesting name. I just like to, I just like to say that every now and then. Carbuncle. That's probably right, yes. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created and you, they were prepared. You were, anointed in a, uh, you were an anointed guardian cherub, and I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So there you get an idea here that Eden was where you know this anointed cherub was. It was on the mountain of God. So there's a lot of uh, indication that would say that Eden was, in a sense, on a mountain. And the fact that rivers are flowing out of it would also suggest this. And that, that just kind of adds, if you will, to this idea of the temple motif because the temple is on Mount Zion and all these things. Um, there's this idea of being on a mountain. But here you've got the creation of Eden where you've got the, the trees there, you've got the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you've got an indication of all of the precious stones and minerals and, and how it's well watered. And this, 
really is a bookend, if you will, to Revelation. Because when we were looking at the last few chapters of Revelation, we noticed there how that is also, in a sense, paradise restored. This was paradise that was lost, well, lost in chapter 3, restored again at the end with the new heavens and the new earth. So now we get to the third point, verses 15 through 17, as God now covenants with man. So you've got God creates man. He has been put into his garden temple. And now God is going to make a covenant with man. Verses 15 through 17. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, <clears throat> excuse me, and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in it, sorry, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So again, we see verse 15 that the Lord God took Adam, put him in a garden, and the reason is so that Adam can do two things. He can work it, and he can keep it. And those words are very uh, specific. Work is the Hebrew word uh, avad, and word keep is shamar. These, as we'll see in a moment, are what the priests do in the tabernacle. They, they minister or work it, and they keep it. They guard it. You can see this in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Uh, but uh, Numbers chapter 3, they, the Levites, shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So that word keep is shamar. The word minister is avad. That's what Adam is doing here in the garden. He is, he is keeping it, uh, avad, or working it, avad, and he is keeping it, shamar. But what we see here is two things in verse 15. First, sorry to say it, work is good. Okay? Work is not a product of the fall. Work is something that is pre-fall. It was meant to be something that was good. It is a pre-fall activity. Man is given work to do. So if you think that work is a product of the fall, think again. Hard work is a product of the fall. Okay, The fact that our labor is hard and that the earth of the ground, uh, the earth yields its fruit very stubbornly, that is a product of the fall. But working is not a product of the fall. We were meant to work. So work is good. It is a pre-fall activity. And then as I said, working and keeping the garden is a priestly work. So if the garden is a garden temple, Adam then is a priest king to rule, to work, and to keep the Garden of Eden. And now verses 16 and 17 are very important. They're important for our understanding of what we call covenant theology. They're important of our understanding of the Bible as a whole. Because what we see here is what many theologians and scholars will call the covenant of works, or the covenant of life, or the covenant of creation. And you're like, well, I don't see the words covenant in there because the word in Hebrew for covenant, berit, doesn't appear until uh, when you get to Mo, uh, sorry, Noah. But it's, as my, one of my professors in seminary used to say, 
If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, guess what? It's a duck, okay? And you've got everything you need here for a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties in which there are promises and stipulations made. And here you have two parties. You've got God is one party. Adam is the other party. You've got a command that is given by one to the other. You've got a reward for obedience that is implied and a punishment for disobedience which is explicitly stated here. So we've got here a covenant of works here that we see in verses 16 and 17. Uh, as Adam or says, the Lord God commands the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in it, in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there you have the, the agreement. So God commands the man, he gives him a command, says you shall not eat of the tree. He says in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Implied that if you do not eat of it you shall surely live. And as I said, this is again uh, verses that are Important for our understanding of what we call covenant theology. Um, covenant theology basically um, breaks down, it, it's a way of understanding the, the scriptures. It's a way of looking at the flow of redemptive history in, in the breaking down of covenant. You've got, in general, you've got three basic covenants. You've got a covenant of works. You've got a covenant of grace, and then overarching that is a covenant of redemption. Now, the covenant of redemption is made between God the Father and God the Son, in which God the Father uh, covenants with God the Son to go into the world and to redeem uh, his elect from the world and to uh, purchase their redemption. That is sort of a universal uh, covenant before the world was created. You can look at uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 in particular, that talks about that, how we are chosen uh, in Christ before the foundation of the world, and how then in Christ we have redemption, and then through the Spirit we are sealed to that, this covenant of works in which God sends Jesus into the world. Uh, if you've been with us through our study through the Gospel of John, Jesus often talks about accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Uh, that is the work of redemption. Now the covenant of works here you see is established with Adam in which God promises Adam life. He holds forth life if he obeys and promises death if he disobeys. And it's the covenant of works that we'll see in chapter 3 when we get there next time that Adam fails in. And then the covenant of grace that is something we're going to see is promised in Genesis 3.15 and, and works its way out through uh, the rest of Scripture where uh, God promises that there will come one, right? We looked at this when we looked at the coming of Messiah. Uh, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the the, what people call the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the Gospel, uh, where God promises uh, the heel, or the head-crushing uh, offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, it is, that's Jesus, and Jesus is the mediator of the covenant of grace. But you got this covenant structure here 
where God is promising. Now, what we're going to see here is God, or sorry, Adam as created owes all obedience to God. God doesn't have to make a covenant with Adam. As a creature, Adam all owes all obedience to uh, God. But God, in a sense, condescends. He comes down uh, to make this covenant uh, and promises, as we said, death and, and, and life upon uh, obedience uh, to the covenant stipulations here. So again, Adam owes all obedience to God, but uh, God then covenants with Adam here in these verses. Uh, he didn't need to. Uh, he didn't have to. God, as I said, Adam would have to obey God regardless. But the promise of life that we get here, that again, it's implied, it's implied that if he does not eat of the fruit, because if he eats of the fruit, he will die. If he does not eat of the fruit, the implication is that he will live. That life he's talking about here is, is something that is, is uh, abundantly gracious. Uh, it is, it is uh, for God to reward Adam's obedience with eternal life is abundantly gracious. And God is gracious in a sense here to even make this covenant with Adam. Uh, he, again, he doesn't need to. But we see here, uh, in, in all covenants, there's usually some, what we call a positive command, and that is to not eat of the tree. Now, when we say by positive command, what I mean by that is, inherently, eating of the tree is not good or evil. It is good or evil because God commands it so, right? You know, if God hadn't commanded him to eat of the tree, then it wouldn't matter whether he ate of that tree or not. It's, it's evil because God commands him not to eat of it. That is what we mean by a positive command. It is something that God adds to uh, what we already have, the law written on our hearts. So God commands them not to eat of this tree. Um, and again, while the covenant is established on works or merits, again, uh, when we say covenant of works, we mean that Adam has to work. He has to obey God. He has to merit this. Even the, the, the very fact that God makes this covenant is, in a sense, gracious. God condescends to, to give him and hold forth to him uh, eternal life if he obeys and, and death if he, um, if he fails. And, and the death here, as we were looking at, as we were, uh, the question was asked earlier, uh, what, is, what is meant by death? And you know, does Adam know what he meant by surely die? Um, I mean, I think that goes a little bit beyond the, what we see here in the scriptures to be able to answer that. But... We know, you know, just from after the fact, right? When you read Genesis 3, um, we know in Genesis 3 and beyond, when he ate of the fruit, what happens to Adam? Well, what happens to Adam is that he begins the slow process of dying, right? You read through chap you know, chapter 4, chapter 5, Adam dies, right? He dies physically. But there's also a sense in death, and, and whether he knew this or not, there's a sense there also of a spiritual death, this, this breaking of the communion between uh, God and Adam in, in this death. Um, and this death is passed along to all of us, as we learn in Romans 5, uh, particularly in Romans 6.23, where all who have sinned, uh, the wages of sin is death. We die physically, we will die spiritually in all of that. 
So we have here the covenant. God covenants with man in his garden. He says, you will work it, you will keep it, you will not eat of that tree lest you die. If you succeed, I will hold forth to you uh, eternal life. Uh, there was a theologian named Gerhardus Voss that coined the phrase, uh, this is a fancy way of saying it, but he says, eschatology precedes soteriology. And you're like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> that means that eternal life precedes the idea of salvation. Okay, because what we have here is eternal life is being held out to Adam. If Adam succeeds, eternal life would have been given to him and all of his progeny would have enjoyed eternal life at that point. But because he fails, then the need of salvation comes in. So uh, this, this goal of eternal life is something that, at least in God's mind, precedes the need for salvation. It's only because Adam fails that you need a, 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 a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation that was planned before uh, the creation of the world. So now it takes us to our final point here in verses 18 through 25 as we see now God forms a helper for Adam. It's interesting because at the end of verse 31, when God finished creation, he said everything was very good. But then you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, and it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Man by himself is not good. That's what we see here. Man, in general, mankind, we are social creatures. We are meant for relationships. We are meant for, for community. We are meant for family. The idea of being alone is not normal. It is very rare. It is a, a, an aberration in a sense. Man was meant to be in community. And the fact that the man is alone, God says here, it is not good that the man is alone. Now men, you may think, yeah, I like to be alone. But it is not good for you to be alone, right? God has made for you a wife, and it is good that you are married to your wife. And now this is, again, this is not to say that everyone has to be married, but this is the norm of, of society. But man is a social creature, so then God here promises to make a helper fit for him, a helper according to him. That word helper is the word uh, azer, azer, which is... it. it, it it's use of God in some cases, that God is the helper of man. So it is not meant to be taken in a sort of an inferior sense. It's just something that is according to man. Someone who will help man in his task here to keep and work the garden and to guard over it. So then you see here in verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, okay, let's not, okay, this is not to mean that God's like, okay, I need a helper, so let's make a cow, okay? 
And then the man's like, well, I'm going to call that a cow, but that's not fit for me. Okay, let's make a horse. Okay, God is not parading the entire petting zoo before Adam and saying, okay, pick one to be your helper. It's just God is forming the creatures, and as Adam is naming them, then we see that there is n- none of these are fit for him as a helper. In other words, man is different from the animals, okay? Again, we said this before. Man is created on the same day as the animals. Man is created out of the ground as the animals. But man is different from the animals. Why is he different? Well, first of all, he's made in the image of God. Second of all, God formed him personally and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So these animals are not, uh, they're not suitable to help Adam in his task. So then verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God uh, had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the Lord God puts man to sleep, takes a rib from his side, and then uses that to form the woman. Again, notice, woman not formed out of the ground. Woman is formed out of man. So he, you know, is, I think it was uh, Matthew Henry, the commentator, that said that uh, she was not taken out of his feet so that she would be inferior to him. She was not taken out of his head that she would be superior to him. She was taken out of his side so that she would be a helper to him. So not inferior, not superior, but complementary, complementary with an E. Okay, that means they fit together. They're two pieces of a puzzle piece that go together. Now notice also that it is woman who is suitable for man, not man that is suitable for women. It's not man and man. It's not woman and woman. It's not man with many women. It's not man and animals. It is man and woman that are together together. complementary. And we saw this, if you remember, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, which was a, that was an interesting study, if you remember that one. But there, that's the study, that's the section on head coverings. But we see there um, in verse 8 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Woman was created to be man's helper. Woman was created from man to be his helper. Complementary. Complementary. And again, it's not, it's, it's not man and man. It's not woman and woman. It's not man with many women. It's not man and animals. It's not women and animals. It's man and woman. And then notice what Adam says when he rejoices. He rejoices when he sees the woman. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There the word for woman, Isha. And the word for man is Ish. Okay, so they're related to one another. And then finally in verses 24 and 25, you see the institution of marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
So marriage instituted at the very beginning. Marriage is a creation institution. Marriage was meant to be the basis of society. It is the building blocks of society. It is not, as we hear often said today, it is not a social construct. Marriage is not something that came up through evolution. It was something that was there at the very beginning. It is not meant to diminish a woman. Right? We hear that too. Marriage diminishes a woman. No. It is to bring together two people who were meant to be together that were made for one another by God's plan. To quote the words of Jerry Maguire, <laughs> you complete me. <laughs> That's what the man says to the woman. That's what Adam saw, said when he saw Eve. You complete me. You are part of my, you're a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The woman and the man together form a complete one flesh union. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That one flesh. Again, man is created in the image of God, woman is created in the image of God, but together, they, they reflect the image of God in a way that neither one of them to, uh, separately can reflect. And marriage, as we see here, is monogamous. One man, one woman. It is heterosexual. A man and a woman. Okay. Uh, it is for the goal of procreation. Right? Be fruitful and multiply. It is not something that can be redefined by society. I mean, that just goes to show you how far we have sunk as a society when we can redefine marriage any old way we want. You're not taking into account how God has defined marriage. Marriage is not something that, marriage is not something to fulfill us, okay, in the sense of uh, fulfilling our own desires, okay? Marriage is set to be the building block of society. Marriage is meant to, to, Redound to the glory of God. It is not to redound to our own glory. We can't redefine it any old way we want. Notice too, it's a leave and cleave type of relationship too. The marriage unit is to, in a sense, take precedence over the familial relationships of father and mother. The man leaves his father and mother in order to form this new family unit. Right? You are to respect your father and mother, but, but the, the marriage unit becomes uh, superior to that. It, be, it, it supersedes that in a sense. And as we know from the New Testament in Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. So what we see here, uh, in a sense, is uh, something that is meant to picture the, the one, if you, in, in a way, one flesh union between. Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and his church as the bride. So here you have it, uh, creation. Uh, after the creation of everything in the space of six days and all very good, God personally and specifically creates man to care and cultivate his garden temple and then makes a covenant with him. That's what we see here in chapter 2. Now, unfortunately, I'm not sure how much space, how much time elapses between chapter 2, verse 25 and chapter 3, verse 1, but with that perfect uh, uh, you know, paradise does not last for very long, at least in our Bibles it doesn't. And that's, that's where we are, right? We are, 
you know, the, the paradise that was created for Adam and, and, and his progeny is gone. It, it's, it's, it's no longer open to us in that sense. We live, as you will, if you will, we live east of Eden, okay? Uh, when, when, when Adam sins, he is kicked out of the garden. He goes east of Eden, and, and you see their life now in a fallen world. That's where we live, right? We are, we're no longer in paradise. We are in a fallen world. We're in a world that is, that is governed by sin and corruption and all kinds of, of pain and heartache and, and, and headaches and all kinds of things. We are under the curse of a broken covenant of works, thanks to Adam. Adam failed in his covenant and brought curse upon uh, all of mankind and on the world, right? Romans, Paul says in Romans 8, even the creation groans. The creation is waiting for its own redemption. As one author says, our lives in this world now are short, ugly, nasty, and brutish. <laughs> I think that was uh, Thomas Hobbes who said that. I looked that up. Short, ugly, nasty, and brutish. Uh, it, you know, I mean, not to say that there's no joys in this life. There are definitely joys in this life, and there's definitely things to be thankful for in this life. But um, those are few and far between in a fallen world. Um, we we are in a sense used to accustomed to grace. Uh, the history of the church, the history of the people of God in this world has, has been short, ugly, nasty, and brutish. But the good news is that in Christ, this is the good news, we have fulfilled the covenant of works because where Adam fails in his covenant, Christ comes in and he fulfills that covenant for us. And then all of its stipulations are fulfilled and then we in Christ can go before God as covenant keepers not covenant breakers, because Christ himself fulfilled the covenant. And then we have, while we have lost paradise in, in Eden, we have the promise of paradise restored in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we long for. That's what we hope for. And that's what is promised to us in the Scriptures. When Christ returns, he will bring paradise restored in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's it for tonight. Uh, next time, which... Uh, we will not be meeting on the 5th because I will not be here. So the next time we will meet will be on the 19th of March, so a month from now. And we're going to look at that fall in chapter 3. We're going to look at the fall of mankind or trouble in paradise, as I like to, as I like to call it. Trouble in paradise in chapter uh, 3.